This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Ever since last weekend's results came in, there's been plenty said about the low, low local election turnout in many places, and the call for something to be done has been loud in the media. But what can the media themselves do to help? Also, Chris Farfoy masterminded the public media merger that's now in train before quitting politics to spend more time with his family last June. But now he wants to spend more time with the government again, lobbying for commercial clients in a move condemned as too soon by some critics and unethical by others. We'll have a look at that. But first, settling on a scheme to charge for agricultural emissions has taken 20 years of consultation and compromise and scientific research, and agriculture's leading lobby groups have been full partners in that process. But when proposals were released this week, obstinate objections and contestable claims from the loudest outsiders got pride of place in some of our media. Looking back at that, were you surprised the old girl got up the steps? No, not at all. I spent a lifetime, in fact, I'm sitting in a tractor as we speak, um, spent a lifetime driving those things when I was, you know, prior to Parliament and uh, driving on the steps of Parliament was driving on a flat paddock to me, but there you go. There you go. That was Waikato farmer Shane Ardern on the Rural Exchange radio show recently, talking to the host Richard Lowe, a fellow farmer better known as an all-black prop in years gone by. And in years gone by, Shane Ardern was notorious as the MP who drove an ancient tractor named Myrtle right up the steps of Parliament to protest against the so-called fart tax on farming. Well, a lot has changed since then. Shane Ardern is no longer the most famous Ardern in New Zealand politics or even in Morrinsville. His distant cousin Jacinda is now. And emissions from our national herds into the atmosphere have risen sharply over the past 20 years without financial penalty for farmers. So it wasn't good news for them last Tuesday when Stuff broke the news of the imminent release of the national plan to start charging farmers for emissions from 2025. Stuff got an early look at the documents on levying farmers, which would make New Zealand the first country in the world with emissions pricing over all sectors and all gases. And in his analysis that day, Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass said this was a national issue, not just a rural one. New Zealand Inc. is building its branding around being a country and primary producer with high sustainability values, which means there could be a first-mover advantage in the global marketplace. But the scheme's costs were way too much for many farmers and their supporters to back, and the scope wasn't wide enough for many environmentalists. NewsHub's website put it like this. Federated Farmers claims the government's plan will rip the guts out of small-town New Zealand, but Greenpeace says it doesn't go far enough. As if Greenpeace had demanded the lungs, heart and spleen as well. Stuff's political editor Luke Malpass said that the government's final call on this wouldn't make everybody happy, but... The Haywaka-Ekanoa process has clearly been a mostly positive one and has constructively brought the sector in to help determine its own future. It's been a long road, travelled over two decades, and now appears to be landing in a place broadly acceptable to most reasonable players. But those were not always the ones we were hearing from in the media coverage, as we'll hear. Stuff's climate editor Eloise Gibson reminded readers that agriculture accounts for around half of New Zealand's official greenhouse gas emissions, and she pointed out that this new scheme actually blended the farming industry's own proposals with some from the Climate Change Commission and a few tweaks of the government's own. And News Hub at 6 that night introduced the story this way. 
It's taken 20 years, but the government has finally announced its plan to make farmers pay for agricultural emissions. And it's broadly what the farmers called for. From 2025, farms will pay for both methane, that's cow's burps, and nitrous oxide from fertilisers. But there's a few key differences from what the sector wanted and what it got. Meanwhile, on TBNZ's One News at Six at the same time, political reporter Benedict Collins also stressed that the farming groups had input into Hewaka Ekenoa. So it effectively, effectively allowed farmers you know, to design a lot of the scheme that the government sort of rubber stamped today. And while, you know, there were farmers unhappy with this, what we're kind of seeing today is sort of, you know, people disputing the detail. And while politics and lobbying had kept agriculture out of the emissions trading scheme for years, Benedict Collins said there was now political consensus. But there's not a huge political dispute here anymore. So while today's announcement might have been a bit messy and there's clearly work to do to help the sheep and beef farmers here, I think today you'd describe it as progress. And at 6pm over on News Talk ZB, the news also stressed that the agricultural industry had input into the plan. Today's government announcement adopted many recommendations from the industry-led Hewaka Eke Noa report. But after that bulletin, it was only discontent on ZB's drive show. The host, Heather Duplessy-Allen, made her opinion clear. The government has released its plans for how to force farmers to pay for emissions by 2025 under Hewaka Ekenoa. Federated Farmers doesn't support it. And it's true that Federated Farmers wasn't backing the new plan. But if farmers will be forced to pay, in Heather Duplessy-Allen's words, from 2025, the choice of farm gate pricing came from farmers' demands for a system that didn't penalise farmers already doing climate-friendly things. And for a view on all this, Heather Duplessy-Allen turned to one of farming's most ardent government critics, North Otago farmer Jane Smith. Um, Heather, you couldn't script a movie this bad if you tried, could you? I mean, to tax the most carbon-efficient farmers in the world and, uh, and end up with increased global emissions. It really is nonsensical at best. You know, the government, Hawaka Ikenoa, and our farm industry leaders and even the Climate Change Commission have become obsessed with pricing methane at the expense of reducing it. And let us be clear, this should have been an emissions reduction scheme, not an emissions pricing scheme. But what was announced on Tuesday is, in part, a reduction scheme, including $380 million of taxpayers' money to get new emissions-reducing tools, technology and practices to farmers, as well as a new research and development centre and the funding of a joint venture with big companies like Ansco, Fonterra, Naitahu. Holdings, Ravensdown Fertiliser, Silverfern Farms and Sinlate. The government is also spending $55 million on an on-farm support service to help farmers and growers understand environmental requirements and reporting. And in spite of 20 years of rising emissions and strong resistance to agriculture in the emissions trading scheme, Jane Smith insisted that it was farmers and not the government who had the emissions reduction solutions. We want something that's admin-light, innovation-heavy, and, and giving farmers and the markets the ability to, to meet those targets in the best way possible, not just blatant land use through a blatant um, uh, tax, an indiscriminate tax that will increase global emissions. And, you know, the public, we owe this to the public, we owe this to future generations of farmers. And Jane Smith's claims went not just unchallenged by Heather Duplessy-Allen, in fact, they were actually endorsed by her. Jane, it sounds like you should be running the show by the sounds of things. And next up on the show was the host of NZME's daily rural radio show, The Country, Jamie Mackay, who's also a huge fan of Jane Smith. I use her regularly on my show. She's a bit of a firecracker. I call mm. her the poster girl for uh, Groundswell, and I'm sure she's made some points. 
She certainly did. And in addition to backing the groundswell protest movement on Jamie Mackay's show, Jane Smith has also in the past complained on the show about what she calls the continual appeasement of government by agriculture industry bodies. Now, when groundswell was starting to swell in 2019, Jane Smith appeared on the country to declare a political stupidity emergency and back up Jamie McKay's own claim of a political crusade against farming. On the ZB Drive show last Tuesday, Jamie McKay went on to tell listeners too much damage to New Zealand agriculture would be caused by the government's new emissions reduction plan. And anyway, he said, the world just wouldn't care if New Zealand met its emissions target or not. How are we going to make a buck? As a nation, how are we going to pay our way in the world? Totally, totally could not agree more. I mean, it's a decision. Do you want your kids to go to primary school or do you want to be cool with the planet and world leading on this thing? Because it's one or the other here. Can't afford both. Well, so far, primary industries paying for emissions, bringing about the end of primary schools, is a scenario only being modelled in Heather Duplessy-Allen's head. Jamie Mackay went on to tell Heather Duplessy-Allen last Tuesday he couldn't agree more with another regular commentator on his show. You know, as Jim Hopkins says on my show, how poor does New Zealand want to be? But Jim Hopkins is not an agriculture expert or an economist. He's a 76-year-old former broadcaster, columnist and comedian, freshly re-elected as a Waitaki regional councillor. And even before the emissions charging details were out this week, he condemned the idea on the country last week like this. This stupid, insane madness peddled by people like Russell, what's his name, Russell Norman and co., who, who actually pay young people to try and solicit money from uh, members of the public outside supermarkets, you know, by signing up for Greenpeace. They are just obsessed, as is the Green Party. There was plenty more in that same interview about the inevitable impoverishment that they reckoned emissions charging would bring. But other things were upsetting Jim Hopkins too. For example the rest of the media. They're too busy being woke to wake up. Seriously. Have you noticed, when, when did New Zealand change its name? We've become Aotearoa. Did all the journalists get together and decide it was up to them to change the name, even though the large majority of people don't want it? Seriously, guys, you, are, you the fourth estate, are a threat to democracy because you're not covering this properly. Now, as we've heard, ZB's hosts and guests on Tuesday couldn't agree more with each other that farming shouldn't have to account for its emissions and that this country will never be held to account for it if they don't. Stances that are at best contestable, but not contested at all on News Talk ZB. Now, as we've heard, they reckon that if New Zealand's production falls, other countries with larger carbon footprints would fill the gap and that would push up global emissions. And that is one scenario described in the Hewaka Ekenoa workings. But the claim that New Zealand's farmers are the most emissions efficient in the world was never backed up. Now, the same claim was stated by other commentators a lot in the coverage this past week and taken at face value. But a closer look at that too in the context of this debate would help. The most often quoted evidence is a report last year by AgResearch, which was commissioned by the lobby group Dairy NZ. It concluded that dairy milk production had a lower carbon footprint than 17 other countries studied, and far lower than most of them. But in the fine print, the report actually noted there wasn't much in it between us and Uruguay, Portugal, Denmark, Sweden and Canada, and that country-specific emissions measurement factors used by New Zealand might give New Zealand an advantage, one which could vanish once other countries fine-tuned theirs. And at the time, ag-research scientist Andre Mazzetto told Rural News this. There is still potential to improve and achieve lower emissions, as other countries also advance their dairy sectors. 
Now, one of those countries is the Netherlands, which in July ordered a cut in nitrogen emissions by 2030. That will cost 40 billion New Zealand dollars and mean big cuts there in livestock and thousands of farms will have to close. And the Netherlands will certainly notice if New Zealand doesn't reduce emissions as well. In this week's Farmers Weekly, the editor Brian Gibson made this point in his editorial. We need to talk about our future with clear eyes. Because if we don't, those other conversations, the ones exporters have in places like London, Berlin and Shanghai, will get much, much more difficult. But the possibility of New Zealand being overtaken by countries actively shrinking their carbon footprint, and not just in dairy, wasn't canvassed at all by Heather Duplessis-Elland and her guests while they were agreeing with each other that the charging scheme announced this week, 20 years in the making, was no good. Indeed, last Tuesday, Heather Duplessis-Elland said she'd actually campaign against the plan. You go ahead with this, I guarantee you generations are going to leave this country because it's just going to become one of those places that... It's got no money, no point living here, eh? Um, but we're not going to let it happen, we're going to fight for it. Anyway, Cam Bagri's going to be with us very shortly. News Talk ZB. Half a day later, on Wednesday morning, there was no sign of that political consensus we heard about earlier when National Party leader Christopher Luxon told Morning Report's Kim Hill that the government's plan was utterly unacceptable. Yeah, we want the industry to be able to develop its own solution. It had one. Uh, it needs to go off. And so given that we greenhouse gas emissions are an international problem and an existential problem, you would allow the industry to call the shots? Yes, I trust farmers. I understand that they get this issue. They are synthesising economics with sustainability. Yeah, but they're not scientists. Neither are they leaders of the country. And just as farmers and politicians aren't scientists, well, neither are talkback hosts or the guests with whom they couldn't agree more. And in his Dawn Chorus podcast on Wednesday, Bernard Hickey said our farmers and politicians are in a sense working through the five stages of political grief towards inevitable cuts in herds and emissions. We need to have less of the anger and denial, less of the bargaining, and a lot more of the acceptance a lot faster. And we're not there. And this process in our political economy, which already has taken at least 20 years and we haven't really started. According to Bernard Hickey, it's a matter of the physics and chemistry of our planet moving much faster than politics and our biggest business. And some sections of the media he could have added. Last weekend, the local election results rolled in, revealing what many pundits proclaimed to be a lurch to the right, and in some cases, a ratepayer revolt, or even a boomer backlash. And Auckland's new Mayor Wayne Brown made headlines by, among other things, snubbing and dissing the media. When do you expect to announce a deputy and committee chairs? I'm in no rush to any of that stuff. I think it's quite clear. I've got, and certainly not before I've met everybody. I've got this odd habit of liking to meet people before I make judgments about them. It's something which perhaps you guys could take up. I took a look at that on this week's Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on nights last Wednesday. And we also talked about the Black Ferns Big World Cup sellout, clashing with the blokes of the Black Caps live on TV last weekend, and why The Economist magazine compared the UK's Prime Minister Liz Truss to a lettuce. And not in a good way. If you missed it, that's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it in our podcast feed. But on the matter of those local elections, much of the angst in the media zeroed in not just on where the votes went, but, as Hayden Donnell now reports, how few of them were cast and why. Yes, I was looking at this today. So it's the governing body of the council that appoints directors, right? Yes. 
Okay, so he doesn't actually have the power to do this. I mean, he's campaigned on something he can't do. No, 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 that's quite right. And, and as I said again, I mean, he's, he's to provide leadership, but if, it's like anything. Another analogy would be government, you know, national government as well. You, you can't interfere with those arrangements. That's Guy Nespiner talking to employment lawyer Barbara Bucket about whether Wayne Brown has the power to hire and fire the heads of Auckland's council-controlled organisations. His incredulous reaction is a little understandable. Despite some admirable efforts from Stuff's Todd Nile, the Herald's Simon Wilson and publicly funded local democracy reporters, many mayoral candidates' promises and policies hadn't received quite the same level of scrutiny they would have if this were a general election. Brown in particular had said he'd get rid of board members at Auckland Transport and Ekapanuku at dozens of mayoral debates across the city before Bucket's revelation on Morning Report that doing so was not actually within his power. If tough fact-checking coverage was in comparatively short supply for the most high-profile mayoral election in the country, it was sometimes non-existent in ward races and less heralded mayoral contests. Pippa Coombe, who lost her seat in Auckland's Waitamata ward, told Media Watch she didn't see much coverage at all of her tight ward race against former councillor Mike Lee. Well, the focus of the coverage was definitely on the mayoral contest, and there was very little on the wards generally. And my ward is central Auckland and the Gulf Islands. Just even the usual coverage that we might expect, like the, the Herald doing a bit of analysis of the ward didn't happen, and even on the ground, very little um, that you could tune into. Like, we didn't have Meet the Candidates um, meetings. We didn't have any debate on community pages. My opposition had blocked me, so there wasn't kind of coverage there. I should acknowledge that there was coverage in the Gulf News on Waiheke, but that was really focused on very local issues, more about the local board. Voter disengagement with local politics is nothing new and it's not isolated to this election. But do you think that the lack of media coverage this time around did make people more disengaged? I'm sure that people who already had fixed views weren't going to change their mind if there was more coverage. But perhaps you know it had an impact on those who might have voted if they knew what was at stake and if they'd had some... Um, visibility around the issues and the policies and the differences um, between the candidates. You know, from my perspective, I think that that vacuum was filled with quite a lot of misinformation and attack ads, which you know motivated people. So that might have actually even increased um, turnout, but it's it's difficult to know. Now, without wanting to seem like a massive sore loser, <sighs> do you think that the lack of coverage? potentially affected the turnout and even the result? Well, you know, as a candidate, I have to absolutely take responsibility um, for my own loss and for not reaching my potential supporters and not getting people out to vote because there wasn't the media coverage that we just presumed would happen. We should have found different ways to reach our potential voters it probably has had an impact on the on the result. The, the media coverage is such an important part of our democracy and election. So if it's not there, you know, it is going to cause a problem and it's going to have an impact on um, election turnout and the results. That lack of coverage was matched by a lack of engagement from the public. Turnout in this year's election was around 40% across the country. In Auckland, it only reached 35% for the second election running.
Back in 2017, Auckland Council carried out research where it quizzed non-voters on why they didn't cast their ballot. The number one reason given was that they didn't know anything about the candidates. The number two was that they didn't know enough about the policies. And the number three was that they couldn't work out who to vote for. There's reason to believe those results are holding true. Here's RNZ's Lucy Shear vox popping some non-voting Auckland students. I don't really have an opinion. Did you guys vote? No. Have you? Yeah. No. Have you voted? No. For the Prime Minister next year. Yeah, for Prime Minister. So you reckon that you guys think that it's more important to vote in the general election? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I don't even know who the mayor is. <laughs> like Honestly, the, say yeah, yeah, like right? the oh, mayor. Yeah. yeah, the voter disconnect was clearly weighing on the minds of film presenter John Campbell and reporter Katie Bradford during last weekend's episode of TVNZ's Q and A. Here's Campbell talking about turnout in the poorer suburbs of Auckland, which, as usual, was lower than in richer areas. You have to say that a turnout below 20% in Ōtara is heartbreaking. It's not good enough either, is it? I mean, this is a dismal fail by someone. He went on to list some possible culprits for that dismal fail, including central government, uninspiring local candidates and the election system. There's some evidence pointing to all those suspects. In a business desk column, Patrick Smelly pointed to postal voting as favouring older homeowners who are more likely to both stick around at an address and actually send letters than younger people and renters. It's hardly news that no one under 40 has much experience of actually posting a letter. We've known for a while that postal voting skews local body voting to the asset-owning classes. Others have criticised local government's consultation processes, which are often incredibly boring and inaccessible for people with busy lives, along with the ratepayer role, which gives homeowners a vote for each property they own in different jurisdictions. But in response to Campbell, Bradford herself honed in on the media's role, saying getting people to care about local politics is a personal dilemma for her. I am passionate about local government and there are lots of people out there who are but how do we show people why it matters and it's a frustration as a journalist you know and you're the same about this but you know how do you say to people you're rubbish in recycling your public transport don't you love going to the libraries don't you love taking the kids to the local pools you know all of these things matter and these are the people who run those and make those decisions these are the people who should be responsible about whether you can get the bus or whether Auckland's trains are going to be shut down for nine months you know all of those things that people do actually really care about people are really angry that Auckland's trains are going to be shut down for nine months. You need to vote for people on the, you know, on this. And, 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 you, and you, need, you need to feel able to. You need yes, to, and yeah, you need to be yeah. able to understand it. And the booklet, you get this tiny blurb. Do people want to read all the, you know, is yeah. that the only way of finding out about candidates? Absolutely. It's not. I asked Katie Bradford to expand on those comments and give some suggestions for how the media can ensure voters have more information about candidates than just what's in that little booklet. Kia ora, Katie. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora. Good morning. So on Q&A, you talked about it being this personal frustration of yours that lots of people don't seem to care about local government in the way that they do about central government. Uh, how much of that do you think is our fault in the media? Given Have we just not given them enough of a reason to care? I think we try, and it's almost a chicken and egg situation, right? How much coverage the media gets is so much based on, I guess, what we think the public want. 
And so if people aren't picking up the paper or they're switching off the radio or switching off the TV when local government stories are on, they're not going to run them. How do we tell those stories in a way that show the importance of local government that still make it interesting, show why it affects people. I've been trying to do that for years. It's hard in TV, for instance. It's hard in radio. Mediums are so different in terms of the way they handle stories that you can't, you know, it, it can be very hard to get that message across. Yeah, you're right, because I, when I do think about the really good local government coverage being done, it's in the Herald or Staff or the team at the spin-off, who I didn't mention in my script earlier, sorry, the spin-off, or maybe local democracy reporters, Felix Damare and Rotorua, I think of, but there's not so much in these visual mediums, and maybe not even so much in radio. Is that a gap there? I think so, and I think there are some of us who try, you know, but get, going to a council meeting and getting pics of, of people sitting around a council board table <laughs> is not great TV, you know, and you have to spend eight hours there. There's so many factors. You know, I think actually we got the Christchurch Council got quite a lot of coverage of their meetings when they were discussing the stadium, for instance. It has to be something that's seen not just of local importance but national importance, and that's where the problem can go. I probably could have done Auckland mayoral stories three or four days a week over the last few weeks or the last month or so. But we have to think from a national broadcaster's point of view, why does someone in Gore care about what's happening in Auckland? I do a bit of local government reporting myself, and I just wonder whether part of it is that we need to make the importance of it really clear to people. Where I think of housing. So there's research showing that councils pretty much literally caused the housing crisis. There's crap bubbling up through your sewer, you know, into the street, then that's to do with council as well. Is it that we're not making the connection between these real-life things that are impacting people and councils more explicit? Absolutely, and infrastructure and public transport and roads and all those things. And how important is the relationship is between local government and central government as well, how intertwined they are, that a lot of these projects are jointly funded or you, to get permission you need either the council's permission or the government's permission. All of this stuff is so important. I think people here, they think it's always central government's fault. They don't necessarily think that there's been a, a council or mayoral involvement in it there. And, and, I, and maybe that is what you're saying, is that it comes back to the media being partly to blame for not explaining that stuff enough. But it's not just our job, it's the job of, of places like LGNZ and you know others as well to try and educate people on this stuff. When I think about central political coverage, we have the gallery and it's, it's happening all three years, it's happening in between elections, whereas local government coverage, you get a wave of it and it's really good at election time, but there's not that kind of round-the-clock monitoring that you get for central elections. It would be great, and maybe this is one of those problems. You know, we do have those local democracy reporters, as you've talked about, which has helped bring some of that back in. But how do you staff that in newsrooms that are already under so much pressure? For me, I have more stories than I can do most days. You've got to prioritise, you've got to work out where you go. You don't have enough bodies, you don't have enough cameras, depending on your medium, how you're going to cover it. Yeah, again, there's got to be the interest in it. I think it would be great to have a, an open council gallery. I've talked about this before, but... Are there enough journalists out there? Are there enough interest out there to make something like that happen? Because I can hear, you know, commercial media people kind of screaming, like, easy for you to say, you know, you don't have to make it, you don't have to make a profit for the shareholders. And they have the metrics, right? And they, they show, I guess, in a lot of cases that maybe people do switch off when the local government stories come up. And as much as people might say they want more local government coverage, you know, whatever service you're using is saying actually they don't. And it's the, the arrow's pointing downwards when they're coming up. 
And is any of that getting into the households that it's needed? You know, you look at 31% turnout, possibly probably a bit more once those final special votes are counted in Auckland. But that turnout is so abysmal. It, it can't just be about the mainstream media and, and what we do in terms of trying to get those messages out. The council should have a massive role to play in that as well. About what, what are they doing to tell people what they're doing? People's lives are so busy. What do you do to get that message through to them? Do you think those structural factors are more important than media coverage? I think of something like councils only get 8% of taxation money. Local government meetings are held at inaccessible times for people with kids or people with jobs. Even the rating system is a powerful democratic motivator for homeowners, but just about no one else. Uh, Postal voting favours homeowners. So there's, there's all these structural factors. Are they more important in your eyes than the media coverage or lack thereof? I think they have to go with each other. The media has to work through that system, together with that system somehow. You know, we can't control what the council do. We don't want them controlling what the media does. But something has to change, I guess is what I'm trying to say, is that this this election showed that turnout did not get any better. Despite quite extensive media coverage across all media outlets, despite a big campaign by our Gen Z and others to get that message out there, whatever is happening right now is not working. Does the media focus then need to be on the fact that we basically have a broken democracy and kind of accepting this regular 40, 35% turnout figure? I think there was a lot of coverage in the lead up to the uh, election about that turnout and trying to encourage people to vote. Are people listening? What else can we do? Uh, I guess newsrooms themselves need to have a look at that and see what see what more can be done. Um, but we uh, we have to accept, as I said, that whatever what's happening right now is not working, and something needs to change. And and is that is it the campaign leading into local elections? Is it the way we voting happens? Is it recognising for three years that you need to the messages need to get out about what's going on? People, as you said, people pay a lot of attention in, in Wellington when they're streaming through your streets, and you you can't you know you can't access fresh water around the country, but. They do, again, do they make that connection between who they vote on the council, and not just the mayor, it's about the councils and local boards as well. Who they vote on that makes a difference. So New Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown, he's seemed to want to keep the media at arm's length for his first week, and maybe that will be an ongoing situation. Does that worry you, and how should the media actually counter that? I think we have to keep asking, as we have been for interviews every day with the new mayor, having those discussions. His response, his, the response from his team to me has been that he wants to get out there and meet with the councillors and staff and so forth before he talks to the media. That he's having, that he's had so many requests from the media that he it would take all day to respond to those. This will prove difficult if we can't get answers about what's going on when he's making quite big statements about the state of the council's books, when he's calling for the resignation of people before he's met with them. The media's role in this is to keep asking those questions. Aucklanders need to know, and the rest of the country, because the impact it has on everyone, need to know what his plans are for the city and how quickly any moves will be made. So you can guarantee we will keep asking every day for those interviews until that happens. How much of this is intertwined? Twined with this diminishment in trust in the media and seemingly this this lack of respect or <laughs> affection for the media in the wider public. You had Wayne Brown, for instance, caught on camera saying that he's going to stick pictures of a Herald journalist to the urinals and it didn't seem to hurt his chances any. Are politicians now just sort of able to get around us? 
Well, that's the Trump effect, isn't it? And, and I know there is a lot of dislike for journalists out there, but comments like that are, are totally unacceptable. And, you know, as journalists, we've faced a lot of abuse and, and so forth over the past couple of years. And politicians who know better saying things like that uh, is not helpful with that. We all work really, really hard to tell people the stories that matter to them. We're talking about local government right now, and I've spent the past two months trying to push the good local government content across the One News platforms. You know, we, we there's a lot of, uh, I guess, misconceptions out there about the media, and politicians who know that this isn't true, saying things like that doesn't help. Uh, but they also know, as you said, it doesn't affect Wayne Brown's chances in the election at all. Uh, in fact, it may have gotten more votes. And so that's something that all we can do in the media is to keep trying to work hard into what we do and try and counter that. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Katie. Cool, thank you. That was TVNZ business correspondent Katie Bradford, who covered the local elections for TVNZ, talking there to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell. And finally, on Media Watch this weekend, back in June, the Prime Minister announced that the minister who fired up the plans for a new public media entity was leaving her government and politics in what she called just a minor reshuffle. And she said Chris Farfoy was going with her blessing. I want to uh, put in my word of thanks to Minister Farfoy. He's done a huge amount of work in the public broadcasting space at a time when we have wanted uh, to see greater investment uh, in public broadcasting. Uh, that agenda continues. Uh, that, that agenda has already been set. But there was plenty of spade work still to do at that point on the RNZ TVNZ merger, and there still is, under his successor Willie Jackson. But back then, Chris Farfoy told reporters it was time to spend more time with his family. You, you, you want to see things through, but you also, if you have a line in the sand, that's a date, then that's just the reality of it. But last week it emerged that he would like to spend more time again with the government on behalf of commercial clients this time. The Herald's George Block discovered the website of a new lobbying firm called Dialogue 22, listing Chris Farfoy as its chief executive and backed by the Auckland-based advertising executive Greg Partington. Now, Chris Farfoy is far from the first ex-minister to go through the so-called revolving door linking lobbying and government, but he's probably the fastest to get through to the other side. Hence the headline, Minister to Lobbyist Too Soon, on the New Zealand Herald editorial last Thursday, which said that restraint of trade clauses aren't unusual in the private sector, and... To pay an MP handsomely while they're briefed on the intimate affairs of the state, only for them to jump across the table to lobby on behalf of paying interests, is asking much of the New Zealand taxpayer. On Morning Report last week, researcher and equality campaigner Max Rashbrook told RNZ's Guy Espiner that monetising political experience and government connections like this was not just unseemly, it would actually be illegal in other countries. The basic point here is that Chris Farfoy sat around the cabinet table for many years and while doing so, you know, of course, gained access to some of the most confidential information in politics. I mean, he knows everything about what was discussed, what ministers think, uh, what the advice to ministers is, what decisions are likely in future, what the prime minister thinks about a whole range of issues. I mean, and this is highly confidential public information that is only really supposed to be held by Cabinet and used for the public good. And when Guy and Espiner asked the Prime Minister if all this amounts to allowing the retailing of confidential information or public information not yet disclosed to the public for private gain, Jacinda Ardern didn't accept that. If 
every every New Zealander knows our intentions and policies via our manifesto. Oh, come on, come on. Are you really making a comparison between a member of the public and a cabinet minister? No, I'm actually trying to answer your question, but you're not pausing long enough. But ironically, not pausing long enough before setting up as a lobbyist was one of the main reasons that Chris Farfoy's move was creating dialogue in the media. And in a Dominion Post opinion piece on Thursday, long-time telecom lobbyist Ernie Newman said Chris Farfoy had set a new, much lower bar by moving into the influence game so quickly that the rest of his cabinet colleagues are still occupying the seats of power. He also pointed out that Chris Farfoy's past portfolios include some especially sensitive ones, like commerce, justice and immigration, as well as communications and broadcasting. And when someone in such a high office pushes such boundaries, it can lead to a dangerous, slippery slope. Well, there's no shortage of those in Wellington right now after a winter of discontents, record-breaking rainfall. But on Morning Report last week, Guy and Espiner pointed out that plenty of others in politics are trying to make it rain in the political lobbying game as well. We've got something of an epidemic of it here. We we were speaking to Tori Farno, who's just won the mayoralty in Wellington. She left the Green Party chief of staff to form um, to to join a lobbying company. Neil Jones was the chief of staff for Jacinda Ardern until 2017. He he left to join a a lobbying company. Wayne Eagleson was the chief of staff for John Key. Um, he he's now with Thompson Lewis, who employ Gordon John Thompson, who actually went to Chief of Staff for Jacinda Ardern and back again. And Guy Nespiner was also aware, though, that it's not just two-way traffic between politics and government and professional lobbying and consultancy. There's a third point on this triangle. Can I just finish with the role of the media here? Do you think that the media are taking this seriously enough? Because then we um, use these people as political commentators very widely. Don't we? I mean, many of the commentators you hear in New Zealand are political lobbyists, some of whom are quite interesting to listen to, but we do use them a lot. And the media, RNZ included, sure do love to air the lobbyists' insights, in spite of any conflicts of interest they might have, which they take on trust, will be declared and managed. Take this week's 9 to noon politics slot last Monday, for example, featuring the former National Party staffer Bridget Morton, who's now a lawyer at the law firm Frankson Ogilvie. Bridget. I think without any doubt, free waters is a toxic thing for this government. And I just take the opportunity to just declare that I've got, yeah. <laughs> that I, we represent a group currently taking the three waters uh, to court. But I think putting it in the politics sense. And these days, the media seem pretty keen on platforming a few high profile ex politicians too as content creators. For example, Deputy Prime Minister Paula Bennett, who's now in the business of Auckland real estate, has a column in the Herald on Sunday and a podcast for NZME called Ask Me Anything, in which she chats to other people with a public profile. The most recent one was a chat with former winners of The Block, who are now property professionals. Just back to the sort of property development, you were saying that you've got one under construction now. Yes. I mean, how do you feel about doing that in this kind of market? I mean, it is a bit gutsy at the moment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we've got uh, development of nine units underway at the moment. And former National Party leader Simon Bridges, who has a day job lobbying for Auckland business, has a similar podcast produced by Stuff called Generally Famous. And in the latest one of those, the politician-turned-lobbyist and podcaster talked to media personality Brody Kane. And I'm not being political here. I just you've got RNZ and TVNZ potentially coming together in this massive wildebeest of a thing that's going to kind of you know run the show. Yeah, I feel like we're in a, a, a an interesting time 
where there's a massive saturation of information and misinformation and everyone wanting to be someone. Well, we've heard the new public media entity called a behemoth before, but never a wildebeest. Now, clearly, the media and politics and lobbyists are all interconnected and even interdependent, but Chris Farfoy has now completed the trifecta. Before he joined Labour in 2010, he reported on politics in Parliament for TVNZ, one of the reasons he was made Broadcasting Minister later on in 2018, and now he's made himself a lobbyist just four months after quitting that job. Now, as we heard on Media Watch last week and the week before, commercial media companies have urged a parliamentary select committee to roll back the new public media entity which Chris Farfoy himself kick-started on the grounds that it distorts the media business. And while Canada has a rule that ex-ministers can't lobby their former ministries for five years after leaving the role, there's no such prohibition here. So what would Chris Farfoy do if a media company wanted to engage him or his company Dialogue 22 to knock back the public media entity that he created as a minister? Well, we put that to Chris Farfoy this week, but he replied, thanks, but I am respectfully going to decline. Now, the Dialogue 22 website advertising his influencing service says, we take your issues, shape your narrative, and get your story where it needs to be. So we can only suppose then that the answer to that question wasn't quite the narrative that Chris Farfoy had in mind. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back with more on the media after the 10 o'clock news next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on nights with Midweek Media Watch, and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.